Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host, Malika Kapoor. My guest today is the CEO of a company whose logo you see everywhere, and there's a good chance you'll see it if you peek into your wallet. I'm speaking with Al Kelly, the CEO of Visa. Al wants to change that by pursuing a model of inclusive capitalism. In this podcast, he explains what that means. And we also talk about his early years, his days at the White House running technology for the Reagan administration, his passion for sports and leadership. Al has often talked about the three C's of leadership, curiosity, courage and communication. These are things he learned from the most important mentors he's had, his parents. Here's Al Kelly on Out of Office. Al, thank you so much for joining me on Out of Office. Great to be with you, Malika. This is a conversation about leadership. And I know that you really value three essential qualities, the three C's, courage, communication, and curiosity. And the one that really stood out to me was, for some reason it resonated, was courage. And I wondered if you could tell me about a time in your life, in your career, that you had to really dig deep and draw on your reserves, draw on your courage to make a decision. Well, I, I actually believe that courage is a very important part of evaluating people in terms of their ability to ultimately lead because the higher you get in an organization, the more lonely it gets. And uh, making decisions uh, often requires courage. It, it's not something that I, I think I try to demonstrate and use courage almost every, every week in terms of uh, making a call on uh, any, any kind of uh, uh, decision. I think some of the, if you're asking for a specific example, I, I think back to a time where I hired somebody, and uh, unfortunately, I recognized in less than three months that it was a mistake. And um, I so value leadership and and talent that I always think about that if somebody's not a good leader, that they're they're impacting lots of other people who are not not happy at work, and therefore you're making their retention at the company uh, vulnerable if you don't do something. So literally in the fourth month, I actually asked the person to leave. And uh, at some level, it sounds horrible. You know, people would question why did I uh, not, clearly I wasn't giving a person the chance. And, uh, you know, the reality was there were, you know, so many issues and so much damage had been done to the spirit of the team in a in a very short window that I felt like I couldn't give the person any more time because the reality was that 
if I remember back, Malika, the person had like 60 people in their organization, and I couldn't have 60 people being unproductive, 60 people being dissatisfied. So I had to make the call. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of shockwaves about it. Mm -hmm. But when I look back, though, I think that people were uh, very, very grateful that, um, in essence, that I had the courage to to, to make that make that call. But I go back to what I said, which is I think that, you know, uh, I often write in performance appraisals, apply the 98% rule more often. And what I mean by that is that when you have most of the information, don't ask for more information and continue to kick the can down the road, which only frustrates people. Mm-hmm. You, need to, you need to have the courage to make a decision, uh, recognizing that, there are rarely, uh, there's rarely perfect information. If there was perfect information, computers could run companies, mm. but there's never perfect information, which is why human beings need to run companies because we can, computers de- don't deal well with ambiguity, whereas human beings can at least process ambiguity if they have courage. And so that's why it's, it's so important to me. And I, I know in talent deals, I'll say, and somebody will say, I think that person could be a successor for somebody. I might say, you know what? They haven't demonstrated to me that they have the courage to be able to act on their own with less than perfect information and make a tough call. You have been the CEO of Visa since 2016. Before that, you had a long career at American Express, but you started out working in technology. And you started off in the early days of your career. You worked in D.C. You were the head of tech in, at the White House during the Reagan administration, and you were only 27. So first question is, what did it involve being head of tech back then? What was your job? Well, I was the head of White House Information Systems. That's a huge role. Huge role. Um, One of the things that interested me is that uh, it was a bigger role than I would have gotten in, in the corporate world at that age and at that time. And I managed everybody from political appointees to civil servants to people like me who came to work for a number of years to try to just do some public service. It was fantastic development for me. Mm-hmm. You didn't have the tools that you have in corporate America. Uh, if I took somebody out to have a beer to talk to them, I paid for it. Uh, there were no kind of expense accounts. Um, it was uh, an incredible uh, growth opportunity, but I was responsible for all the non-high-secure uh, uh, systems. So there were, there's something called the White House Communications Agency, which is run by the military, and they oversee the systems for our, the National Security Council and any other dealings that the, like the president's telecommunications and those kinds of things. But anything on the administrative side from uh, the desktop uh, devices on people's desks, and when I was there, we were converting from Word, pro, uh, word processing machines to uh, PCs. Uh, <laughs> wow. The email system went in then. It was uh, something that if people of my age will remember Profs, which was an IBM uh, email system. Uh-huh. We had mainframe systems that did everything from payroll to uh, personnel systems uh, to procurement systems. There was a system that handled all the communications that came to the White House and to the president. And the White House gets tens of thousands of, uh, at least in that day, letters. I'm sure today it's many more come in a digital form of yeah. emails, and they all have to get handled. Uh, 
every administration wants to know what people are writing about and where they stand on issues. And so in many ways, it was a, a bit of a polling system that you could you could take the a te- a president could take the temperature of what people in the country were feeling based on the letters they were getting, the subjects people were writing about and the positions that that uh, people were taking during that time um, in uh, 1986 was the uh, Iran-Contra affair where there were White House got caught up in a issue of uh, providing arms to the Contra rebels and uh, the Prof's email system is probably the very first example of people realizing, oh my gosh, these emails actually get kept. Oh. And a number of those emails were the end of key people, including at the time the president's national security advisor, uh, John Poindexter, uh, resigned, as it turns out the person I reported to. And uh, people really came to understand the the fact that emails are saved, and as I advise everybody, is don't shoot off an email you shouldn't shoot off. If you're if you're mad, sit back and think about it, and uh, and and don't write it or don't send it until you've until you've uh, clear your he- clear your head cleared your head. But it was a fantastic uh, uh, opportunity for me. I love uh, politics, and I love being in Washington. And but most of all, it was a phenomenal. Uh, formative period in terms of my leadership. Did you ever consider a career in public service then? Oh, I, uh, for until about eight or 10 years ago, I was highly interested in it. Um, and, you know, if we were talking 10 or 12 years ago, I would have told you with, you know, probably with certainty, I would try to do something politically. But I've been so turned off by the partisanship that exists in the country right now. I, I don't recognize either major party. And, uh, you know, it's a heck of a sacrifice to go into public service. And I'm a, I'm a doer. Uh, I try to get, I'm action oriented. I like to get things done. And uh, the whole system goes too slowly and too little is, is done for my liking. So I, I think I'd be super highly frustrated if I, if I jumped in. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? 
You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. After you worked at the White House, you went on to have a very long career at American Express. You were there for over 20 years. You had many senior positions there, including president. And then you left. And when you left, uh, it created a real buzz in the press. And there were lots of reports saying that you left because you didn't become CEO. And I wanted to ask you if there was any truth to that. And if so, you know, how did you reconcile with that? Was it a disappointment uh, or did you look at it as a chance to sort of move on to a different opportunity and to reinvent yourself? I'm just curious what your thinking was around that time. Well, it's not true that I was upset that I wasn't the CEO because uh, Ken Chenault was the CEO and uh, he was entitled to be the CEO for as long as he wanted. He was doing a very good job. But I became convinced that Ken was going to stay a lot longer than he initially intended to stay. Right. And, um, and I turned out, it turned out I was right. <laughs> you know, he stayed till 2018 and I uh, announced I was leaving at the end of 2009. That's a long time. Um, and uh, he actually was there longer than I thought he would be, but um, but I didn't want to wait till 2013 or 2015. And so that was really the, the driving force that I thought, uh, and I was afraid if, he, if Ken stayed too long, that there could be a likelihood that the board should decide to go back a generation before me. And that, that, that would really have disappointed me, that if I had waited and it was decided that, you know, instead of going with a guy in uh, his late 50s, let's go with somebody in their late 40s or early 50s. That would have been, you know, super disappointing. So I decided I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and uh, I, I just decided to, uh, you know, that I was going to figure it out. And uh, I learned a lot at a great platform coming from an express a great company. And uh, that's really why I left. So you go back to the principle of courage, right? It takes a lot of courage to do that. It did. And, uh, but I, believe me, I don't take that, I didn't take the decision lightly. I thought yeah. uh, long and hard of, about it. But yes, it, I didn't know what I was going to do. So from that perspective, it, 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 uh, it took some courage. One thing you said when we were talking about your White House is that those years there really shaped your views on leadership. How so? Well, I don't know about as much my views, but but it, it forced me to grow up as a leader real quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, the most people I had managed at, at uh, PepsiCo, which is where I started my career, was, you know, five. And all of a sudden, I'm managing 100. And, uh, you know, there's a, when you manage five people, you're a player coach. Mm-hmm. And that's what I say to people. If, if you manage five people, you can't afford to not be a worker. You can't afford to not be very active. You've got to pitch in. And, and, and do your part. Well, at the same time, you know, trying to develop and, and help your colleagues that uh, report to you. You know, when you move to 100 people, it, it's a very big difference. You, now, now you're the, the conductor of the symphony. 
and uh, you have to make sure that the violinists and the celloists and the uh, drummers all are on the same page, albeit that they're doing different things. Uh, you have the ability to set a common purpose, a common vision, a, a, a strategy that everybody follows. You have to have a, a different mechanism for staying in contact with your organization. You have to have a different mechanism for motivating them, for communicating with them. And uh, I got that opportunity at a young age, which really helped me when I went into American Express because my very first job there, I had over 100 people. And I'm not sure that I would have gotten there that quickly had it not been for uh, the uh, days at uh, uh, the White House. I'm actually later on today talking to a whole group of new senior vice presidents, and I'm going to talk to them about the whole notion of what we're talking about here is moving from a player coach to more of the, the conductor of the symphony. There are lots of um, sports analogies in many of your interviews. I know sports has played a big role in your life as well. Your grandfather, I believe, was a sports editor at the New York Times. Um, tell me a little bit about how important sport has been in your life and your career, actually. Well, as you said, unfortunately, my grandfather died age 68 and I was only 10 years old. I did spend a lot of time with him, but I didn't really get a chance to know him well. But, mm -hmm. you know, he ingrained in my dad a, a, a real love of sports and, and I picked that up and uh, I played all kinds of sports uh, growing up. And uh, and I actually follow a wide variance of, of sports uh, today. It's one of my releases uh, from work. I enjoy going to a I'm particularly a, a college basketball fan. I love going to college basketball games for those two and a half hours. I'm escaping. I'm rarely looking at my phone. I'm mm -hmm. really kind of enjoying it. I usually go with my wife or a couple of my kids or sometimes a couple of uh, friends. So it's a great opportunity to, to catch up. In jobs like mine, you can very easily lose track yeah. of uh, your uh, your friends. I also think sports is a – sports is very interesting um, – in terms of some of the things that you can apply to business. Um, you know, there's a clear scorecard in sports, right? It's, and it's ruthless, uh, maybe too ruthless for me in terms of I would never, you know, want to uh, be uh, talking about everybody's record every day, but that's what happens. But there's a clear, a really clear scorecard. Sports is a, a, is a business where you change quickly. You know, things aren't working. You're, 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 you're in the locker room or you're in your practice facility and you're making adjustments. It's also a sport that spends a lot of time thinking about talent, uh, thinking about evaluating talent, thinking about successors. Uh, it's a next man up type of sport, uh, type of business where somebody gets, gets hurt and you know who's going to be the next person. I think we can all learn from that. I think that sports probably does a much better job on uh, session planning and talent planning than most corporations do because talent is so central to it and mm -hmm. because the, the nature of the business is so physical that you, you have to determine who the next woman or man up is. Do you play a sport yourself? Uh, I, I love to play golf now. I uh, play some uh, tennis and, uh, you know, my, I used to run. I was a competitive runner, but my legs are not as good as I'd like them to be today. So I'm, I'm kind of more of an elliptical guy at this point and I've given up my running uh, 
uh, outside. I used to play pickup basketball, mm-hmm. but about 15 years ago in a pickup game, uh, I was playing against young kids and a, and a, and a boy in eighth grade um, and I went up for a rebound and came down and he had the ball and my shoulder was dislocated. Oh, no. So, uh, as a result oh. of that, I, I decided maybe that's a signal from somebody that I ought to stop playing <laughs> uh, pick up basketball, again, especially against younger guys. <laughs> Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, these days, a lot of CEOs talk about leading companies with purpose. Purpose has become a real buzzword. And I know that you believe in something you refer to as inclusive capitalism. Can you explain that to me? What is inclusive capitalism? Well, you know, probably many people, if not all the people who who will listen to this podcast, uh, Malika, will... uh, you know, be people who have bank accounts, have a credit card and a debit card, um, have the ability to get a mortgage if they want to buy uh, a, a home or a condo or, or a co-op. But, you know, there's just under 8 billion people on the face of the earth and 1.7 billion of them, from our estimates, live outside the mainstream of uh, the financial systems around the world. Um, you know, their wages are low. They don't have any ability to get uh, any kind of capital. And if you can't get capital to yeah. get a business going, it's, it's very hard for it to ever scale. And, uh, and if you look particularly in uh, Africa and parts of Southeast Asia, it's often women uh, who are trying to start businesses and they're trying to start businesses because they want to help their community and they want to help their families. And, you know, if you can uplift one person, you off, off, it usually has a multiplier effect and you can uplift 
five or six or seven people by the help you can provide. So for, for, for us at Visa and for me personally, trying to do what we can do uh, to help uplift some of those 1.7 billion people. And we're doing things like we've got a whole series in, I, th- I think, something like 30 or 40 languages where we, we teach the basics of, uh, of uh, personal finance. You know, what's a debit card? What's a credit card? What's a bank account? Uh, what's a loan? Uh, what's interest? Uh, what's insurance? Or, or things that sound so basic to us are not so basic to many people around the world. We're also using our foundation to try to uh, uh, provide help to uh, people. We're, we're actually just kicking off a campaign for the second year in a row with an organization called Kiva where our, we're offering our employees the ability to make loans to people. And we share the stories of hundreds of entrepreneurs around the world uh, uh, who are really outside the financial mainstream who are looking for help. And they're looking for loans of, you know, And last year we had an amazing, it was, it amazed me over 80% of our employees participated in in this program of make, making loans to um, uh, these businesses around the world and they, and they track them. So we're going to continue to do everything we, we can. I, I, I think it's great for the world and obviously ultimately good for our business if we can reduce the 1.7 to 1.5 to 1.3 and, and maybe some year, some year, some time to zero. That would be remarkable. I mean, I know we, we forget, right, sitting in major cities and major financial centers of the world, we forget that uh, a huge uh, majority of the, of the population is outside the financial system. So, it, yeah, it's great that you are trying your best to reach out to them. I know faith plays a big part in your life. How does that influence you as a business leader? Well, you know, faith, first of all, for, for me is, uh, it's an escape. It's a, it's a, a place to privately think about, you know, some of the, the challenges that, uh, I face. It's one of the ways I, uh, uh feed and refuel my courage, uh, to, mm-hmm make, uh, 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 you know, those difficult and sometimes more difficult, uh, issues, you know, that said, I, I think that, uh, a leader of a company, especially a public company needs to not, uh, project, uh, their political beliefs or their faiths, um, uh, on either their employees or, or constituents. I think that, my job is to represent uh, Visa and what's in the best interest of Visa, and certainly faith, you know, you know, formu- you know, formulates a lot of my moral compass, and it, and therefore it drives some of the things that are in the values of our company and, and that kind of thing. But I, I, you know, I don't ever want anybody to th- think that you know my personal political beliefs or in my case, my Roman Catholic religion is is driving my decision making. It's probably all it's kind of way back in the back of my head, but I try to you know as as the CEO of the company, I believe my job is to park uh, my ego uh, and 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 uh, my and 
my specific faith, uh, my specific political views, et cetera, at the door and do what's uh, in the best interests of uh, my company. Yes, of course. I mean, I think it's just more like it's, it's for some people, it is a source of strength. Or as you said, it's what helps you um, with courage. It sort of gives you the strength sometimes to perhaps make tough decisions. Uh, you grew up in a very large family, seven siblings. Is that right? I did. So I'm the oldest of seven. So it must have been um, a really busy household. It, it was a busy household. Uh, the first, uh, my sister, who was fifth in the family, was uh, born uh, less than six years after I was born. So it was uh, my mother had the first five in quickly uh, uh, <laughs> just about six years and yeah. uh, the latter she took a rest and uh, the latter two came uh, pretty close together but about four years later so tell me how did that shape you and make you the person you are to be the eldest of seven siblings well you probably should ask my si- my siblings <laughs> good good point <laughs> but you know i think i always felt uh a sense of uh, responsibility. I felt uh, an obligation to set a good example. I had an. I felt like I wanted to always involve my siblings in what I was doing. I always wanted to help them. So I actually think it was quite formative uh, in who I am today, and the fact that I actually um, am, uh, you know, so attracted to leading things. Uh, and I, you know, I give my siblings a lot of credit for putting up with me and, uh, and, uh, but it, it, it really helped me a lot. And my parents were great role models. Your parents were great role models. What did you admire most about them? Well, my mom was, I'm so blessed they're still with us. They're both 91. Um, and, uh, you know, my mom was incredibly creative. Um, and, uh, you know, in everything she did when we were young, when we had our birthday, she would make a cake in the, in the year of your birth. So on your 10th birthday, it would be a one and a zero, you know, your eighth birthday would be an eighth. And she, she did all kinds of, uh, creative things. And a lot of that creativity I watched from my mom is, you know, still a big part of, of me. And I try to think about her when. You know, I think a lot of what I have to do when I speak, for instance, is to entertain. And I, I you know, think of uh, my mother and a lot of times when I'm thinking about that. You know, my dad um, was the CEO of an insurance company. So I learned a lot from him in terms of, uh, you know, he taught me the, the very basic important things, the importance of a firm handshake, looking people in the eye, calling them by name, uh, showing uh, empathy towards them, showing interest in their lives, and uh, you know, uh, and and the importance of communications. You know, my father would, uh, was a lector in church, so he would do the readings, and he encouraged me to to do do that. Uh, even one uh, uh, mass that I was at, the singer didn't, uh, the lead singer didn't show up, so I led the songs. I did that once and only once because it was horrendous. I think people were walking out of church at the, at the fright of my voice. But, you know, I learned early on to be comfortable getting in front of a microphone and communicating to people. And, you know, that's, that's important. Communications is a critical part of being an effective uh, leader. So my parents 
were both incredible role models. So communication takes you back to the one of the three C's, right? Which is courage, communication, and curiosity. You know, you lead a massive organization, a global organization. Um, you've also had bosses and leaders uh, above you along the way. What is a quality you admire or you respect in another business leader? Well, I, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I, different business leaders have different qualities and different ways they approach things. I, I measure in, as best I can the, the real success of a leader in the follow, followership that they engender and, 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 and earn. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a, a servant and situational leader, and I, I believe that it is my job to earn the respect of the people in my organization. It's not their job to respect me simply because of my, my title. And uh, so I, I think, the, and I, I've said this before, to, I say it to leaders in our company all the time. The absolute number one thing you want to strive for is to earn uh, genuine followership. That people will, will do for you what they need to do. And it's done because they want to do it. They're not intimidated about doing it. They're not, they're not afraid, therefore they do it. They, they want to be successful. They want you to be successful because you've, You've taken care of them. You've shown interest in them. You've developed them. You've shown empathy for them in difficult situations. And uh, so the leaders I will tend to gravitate to uh, and, and admire will be leaders that have apparently or seemingly, as best I can tell, have earned genuine followership from their organizations. My last question is, this podcast is called Out of Office. What's your favorite thing to do when you're not in the office? Oh, uh, well, you know, I have five children and uh, and now two son-in-laws. So we're I we're a family of nine, and uh, and I guess I have to add the darn dog that my daughter has. So I guess you add that there's ten, <laughs> and you know, frankly, I spend so much time traveling, although less during the pandemic, yeah. that, uh, you know, spending time with them is my number one objective. Um, I'm still blessed that even though three of my kids are in their 30s, they like to travel with my wife, Peggy, and I. They like mm -hmm. to go on vacation uh, with us. Um, and uh, and our five kids get along great. And so do our two son-in-laws, which I give my wife enormous credit for. So we're a very tight family. And, uh, you know, that's that's my number one thing, spending time with them. And then obviously trying to make sure I take care of my, my folks as best I can for as long as uh, we're blessed to have uh, them around. And then after that, I think it's recreational stuff, playing golf, playing tennis, working out, uh, and, you know, trying to take care of my wellness as I, as I age. Well, I hope your folks uh, do listen to this podcast. And Al, thank you so much for joining me on Out of Office. Great. Well, thanks to you and uh, appreciate spending the time with you. Thank you.
That was my conversation with the CEO of Visa, Al Kelly. I hope you enjoyed it. This episode was produced by Mamoy Ikeda Helminska and Magnus Henriksen. I'm Malika Kapoor. As always, stay well and thank you for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.